Would you turn with me to the Old Testament prophet Zechariah? That's the second book from the end of the Old Testament, chapter 8. And while you're turning to Zechariah 8, let me tell you that there are three dated prophecies in this book, similar to three dated prophecies in Haggai, and they reveal that this prophet, Zechariah, was a contemporary of Haggai. And so we know that he was prophesying about 520 B.C. uh, and in the subsequent decades. Both Haggai and Zechariah prophesied in Jerusalem to the returned exiles, and both of them had as their goal to encourage the beleaguered saints to get on with the building of the temple. (coughs) Now, I think the main point of the book of Zechariah is found in chapter 8, verses 13 to 15. So I want to read those with you. And we'll wind up with these verses in a little while, too. As you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. See, there's that admonition to get on with the work. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to do you evil to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again, I have purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. So the main point of the book, I think, is (coughs) fear not. Because I purpose to do good to you. That's the summation of the whole book. And then the book is filled with visions and prophecies of how God is going to save Israel, make her a blessing and do her good in the coming years. And those promises then are intended to fill the saints in Jerusalem with so much courage and hope that they get on with the work at hand. Now. One of the problems that we face as Gentile believers in the 20th century in reading a book like this is whether or not words addressed to Judah and Jerusalem can be taken over and used by us for comfort and consolation and encouragement. So what I want to do at the outset here, and this is important for all these messages on the prophets, is give you five principles that guide me in my effort to read Zechariah for us in the church today. Principle number one, I think these prophecies were aimed primarily at the ethnic people of Israel. They were the audience when they heard Zechariah say to you, O house of Judah and house of Israel, they would have understood Jews. They would not have understood Uh, Gentile believers in the 20th century. So the first principle is there's no getting around. The primary hearers intended by Zechariah is ethnic Israel. Second principle. I think there is yet in the 20th century a glorious future for this ethnic people of Israel. I think it's too simple to say that since the time of Christ... The church has replaced Israel as the people of God, even though that's true in a sense. 
The reason it's too simple is because in Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that he thinks there is yet a future for ethnic Israel. For example, in verse 1 of chapter 11, he says, Has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, God has not finished with his ethnic people Israel because I'm an ethnic Jew and he's at work in me and others like me. Now, Paul does admit in Romans 11 that Israel has been temporarily rejected as the people of God by the sins that they've committed and by their unbelief in the Messiah. But that rejection is entirely for our sakes so that we Gentiles might receive the gospel. And then it says when the full number of the Gentiles comes in, he's going to go to work on Israel again. Listen to the way he puts it in Romans 11, 12 and 15. Now, if they're speaking of the Jews, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Or, verse 15, if their rejection means reconciliation for the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? In other words, in this text, Israel is distinct from us believing Gentiles, and he says that if their rejection means a lot for us, the gospel has reached us, we are now reconciled to the Lord, how much more after that is completed will their full acceptance mean? So there is a future, a glorious future for Israel, and Paul puts it like this in verses 25 and 26. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles comes in, and so all Israel will be saved. And in that context of Romans 11, 12, and 15, there is no warrant for construing all Israel to mean the church. It must mean ethnic Israel. So, one of my guiding principles then in reading Old Testament prophecy is that there is yet today a future for Israel in which many of these Old Testament prophecies will find very Specific fulfillment. Third principle. By faith in Christ, Gentile believers have become full partners in the promises made to Israel. And here are the two texts from which I get that principle. Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ's, you Gentiles, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Or Ephesians 2, 19 and 3, 6. So then, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, by faith in Christ... Gentile believers no longer, to use Paul's words back in verse 12, no longer are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and no longer are strangers to the covenants of promise. We are full fellow heirs and fellow citizens with the saints, with the Jews. Fourth principle. 
These first three principles imply then that the Old Testament prophecies are not less than literal as though physical Israel were not in view, but they are more than literal because not only do they apply to ethnic Israel, but they also reach out and embrace those who have become sons of Abraham through faith. The final principle is this. Many of the benefits promised to Israel and through Israel to the church are fulfilled in stages. And that's not at all surprising when you realize that the long expected Messiah around whose coming so many of these promises clustered himself has come in stages to their great surprise. The first time to suffer and die for our sins and then a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are waiting for him. So these are my five guiding principles as I read and apply Zechariah to us today. It is aimed primarily at ethnic Israel. There is a glorious future for this ethnic Israel when she repents and believes on the Messiah, Jesus. By faith, we Gentiles have become full participants in the commonwealth of Israel and heirs according to the promise. And fourth, therefore, the Old Testament prophecies are not less than literal, as though they didn't apply to Israel. They're more than literal because they apply both to Israel and embrace those who are sons of Abraham by faith. And finally, the fulfillment of those prophecies occurs in stages. All right. Now, the practical implication of those five principles, which I hope all of you can embrace for your great benefit, is this. Every time you read a fear not... In the Old Testament, it's yours. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, and not only the commands and the comforts, all those reasons are also yours. All those arguments for why we need not fear. Now, back to chapter 8. We began by saying that the main point of Zechariah is fear not, for I purpose to do you good, Jerusalem. A very profitable way to study Zechariah, which is a very perplexing book in many ways because of these strange visions. It's like Revelation. Is to sit down on an afternoon and read it through, marking all the verses where God says he's going to do something good for Jerusalem or for Judah. I did that and marked 50 verses. In this book and was at I was hard put to know what to preach on from Zechariah. And so I chose the verse that I think is the most important promise of all. Chapter 13, verse one. And the reason I say chapter 13, verse one is the most important prophecy is that if it doesn't come true, none of the others can. It's the foundation on which all the others are built. Let's read it together. <clears throat> on that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. In other words, Zechariah promises that at some future time, a fountain is going to be opened for the people of Israel That'll take away all their sin and guilt. Now, I say that's the most important and foundational promise because 
if we or Israel expect to inherit all the other glorious blessings of God promised in Zechariah, we got to have our sins taken care of first. God cannot bless sinners who have not had their sin taken care of. And therefore, this fountain is foundational. Something's got to happen between God and man to get sin out of the way. If all the other blessings of the Old Testament are going to be ours, the fountain of cleansing is checkpoint number one on the road to heaven. Now, to understand that promise, then 13 one in the context of Zechariah, there are three questions I want us to ask and try to answer. Number one is this. Why did Zechariah say that still in his day a fountain had to be opened? Third, second, I mean, why or how does the fountain bring about cleansing from sin? How does it work? And third, for whom is it there? Who can read this verse and say, that's mine, and and take comfort and cleansing from it? Okay, first, why did a fountain still have to be opened? Do you see what that implied for a discerning Israelite in Zechariah's day, that implied that something was wrong or inadequate about all those sacrifices that they had given and still were giving. They were inadequate. They didn't suffice to deal with the sin problem, evidently. And that's exactly what Hebrews teaches us on this side of the cross. If the worshipers in the Old Testament had once been cleansed, it says... They would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year. For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Why? Why is it impossible? Why did a new fountain have to be opened after all that provision God had made? I think the answer is this. The loss suffered in the death of an animal is utterly out of proportion to the injury which we have done to the glory of God through our distrust and disobedience. There's no correspondence. There's no way that the death of an animal could make amends for our impugning the glory of God through our unbelief and disobedience. The essential evil, to help you see why that's true, you you have to grasp what sin is. The essential evil of sin is not the ruin it brings upon human relationships, though that's horrendous. The essential evil of sin is the scorn that it brings upon the glory of God. If we could but grasp the horridness of the evil of sin in relation to God, we would not stumble at the justice of hell and we would not be surprised that only one sacrifice will suffice. The Son of God and only the Son of God. Our disobedience of an infinitely worthy God is an infinitely blameworthy disobedience. Deserving of eternal torment. 
Matthew 25, 46, Jesus' own words. Therefore, no finite animal or human sacrifice will ever do to make amends for what we've done to the glory of the Lord and fallen short of it. Only an infinite humiliation out of regard for the infinite glory of God will make amends for the assault that we have approached the glory of God with in our unbelief and disobedience. The fountain that had to be opened was not the slit in the neck of an animal. It was the death of the only Son of God. And Zechariah, he couldn't see how this would all take place. But this God granted him to see that if anybody's going to be saved, a new fountain has to be opened, whatever it is. Second question, how does this opened fountain bring cleansing? How did Zechariah see it? Did he give us any insight from his perspective 500 years before it happened? Turn to chapter 3, verse 8, if you want to look at these verses with me. Chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Here, Zechariah shows us that the forgiveness of sin, which he expects to come, is very closely connected to the Messiah coming, whom he says is the branch. He calls it the branch like, like uh, Jeremiah does. Look at the end of verse 8. This phrase, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. And then drop down just a word or two to the end of verse 9. And I will remove the guilt of this land in a single day. Now, two things are important when you put those two verses together. One is the close connection between the coming of the branch, the Messiah, and the taking away of the guilt of the land. Surely they are very closely related in Zechariah's mind. And the second thing is that the sin or the guilt is going to be removed not through a long process, but in one day it's going to be wiped away. And those two things fit Jesus Christ and his death for us so perfectly. We know from all the quotes of Zechariah in the New Testament that Jesus was the branch. Jesus was the Messiah. And we also know from the teaching of Hebrews that when he died, sin was dealt with once for all. Hebrews says he didn't make atonement for sin by repeated sacrifices, but he gave himself once for all at the end of the age to take away sin. And so Jesus provides this once for all atonement and is the branch. But in order for anybody to benefit from the fountain that's opened in Jesus' side, as it were, they have to be penitent and be sorry for all the scorn that they brought upon the glory of God and repent and turn to walk in His ways and trust the Savior. And that does not come naturally, does it? People do not naturally feel bad that they have offended God. We tend to feel bad that we've offended humans sometime. We've hurt somebody and, or, or we've gotten ourselves into trouble and so we feel remorse. But it isn't many people who feel pricked 
in their conscience that they've offended God. And so if that's going to happen to the heart, God's got to go to work on the heart and pour out a spirit of contrition. Turn back now to chapter 12 and we'll see how Zechariah sees that happening. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, prepare the way for the open fountain in verse 13, a few verses later. Listen to this mysterious prophecy. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of compassion and supplication so that when they look on him whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him. As one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. Now, the reason somebody weeps bitterly for a firstborn is because he's died. Which means that this text must imply the inhabitants of Jerusalem have pierced and killed somebody. And they're now broken and contrite and filled with a desire to supplicate the Lord for mercy, for forgiveness. Notice three things in this mysterious prophecy. One, he predicts by implication that the inhabitants of Jerusalem are going to pierce and kill someone very, very important. And that they, in fact, did. Jesus Christ, pierced in his side, pierced in his hands, pierced in his feet, opening a fountain of cleansing. Second, God is going to convict the house of David and the dwellers of Jerusalem with a spirit of compassion and supplications. And third, they will be filled with sorrow and mourning for their sin and turn to the Lord. And the fulfillment of that probably began on Pentecost morning when Peter preached and they were cut to the heart and 3,000 said, what must we do? Supplicating the Lord. And 3,000 were saved by the fountain being opened. And the final fulfillment, I think, is yet to come for Israel and we will talk about that in just a moment. When it happens that a people, whether Jews or Gentiles, repent of their involvement in the death of Christ through sin, the fountain is open, it flows freely, and forgiveness is available to all. And so what happens is that promises start to pop out of Zechariah all over the place when he realizes this can happen. Let me just read you a litany of these. Chapter 14, verse 11, Jerusalem shall be inhabited, for there shall be no more curse. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Chapter 2, verse 5, for I will be to her a wall of fire round about, says the Lord. I will be the glory within her. Chapter 2, verse 10, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Lord. And chapter 8, verse 8, I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. All the promises made to Israel and to the church depend upon the opened fountain and the repentance of God's people. 
So in answer to our second question, then, how does the fountain bring cleansing? We've seen three things. One, the Messiah, the branch, is going to come. He will be slain and he will be a fountain by his blood for the peoples. Second, God will work on his rebellious people to convict them of their sin. And third, they will be full of mourning and contrition and turn to the Lord for forgiveness. And he will be the glory in their midst and the curse will be taken away. And that leaves just one more question. For whom is all this promise? Who can read Zechariah today and say, it's mine, it's me there. Just Jews, just church. First of all, surely the Jewish people, even though they are now displeasing God through their unbelief and rejection of their Messiah, the New Testament holds out great hope for the corporate people of Israel. They are one day going to have the veil lifted off their mind, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. They're going to have the hardness taken out of their heart, according to Romans 11. He's going to pour out a spirit of compassion and supplication, according to Zechariah 12. And the result will be that they look to Jesus, whom they have pierced, and they will confess him Lord and Messiah, believe and be saved. And I think the implication of that is that we ought to pray with fervor and witness with boldness to all our Jewish friends and associates. And it may be that we are witnessing in our own day the initial outpouring of that spirit in the Messianic Jewish movement. But most of us here aren't ethnic Jews. Can we read Zechariah and say, that the fear not, let your hands be strong, I am for you, O Jerusalem, refers to Bethlehem? Yes, we can. If we understand that what happened when Christ opened the fountain of his life by laying it down for us, we'll know that we're included and heirs of these promises. When we hear words like Zechariah 10, 2.10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come and I will dwell in the midst of you. We, we Christians, we can't help but hear the words of Hebrews 12, which says to Gentile believers and Jewish believers alike, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. We're citizens of the new Jerusalem and what's promised to Jerusalem will be ours as well. So we remember that in Christ we're no longer aliens from the covenants of promise and no longer strangers to the commonwealth of Israel. We are full fellow heirs. And the hope and the joy and the glory of Zechariah is our hope and our joy and our glory. But if you wonder about that interpretational uh, maneuver... The great thing is, is that Zechariah said that same thing. Turn back to chapter 2, verse 10. We don't have to go back from the New Testament to the Old to understand that these promises embrace the nations. He said in 
in Zechariah 2, 10, 11, Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of you and you shall know the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord. That's you and me, Americans, as well as all the other nations who look to Christ. So the fountain of forgiveness has been opened for you. And if you cleanse yourself by faith in that fountain, all the other promises of Zechariah and all the other promises of the Old Testament are yours for your encouragement of faith in walk with God. So I return to the main point of the book. I have purposed in these days, says the Lord, to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not, but let your hands be strengthened. Amen. Let's stand and sing together hymn number 263. There is a fountain filled with blood. Shall we stand? Hymn number 263. Give you a spirit of compassion and supplication and keep you beneath the fountain of his love. Amen.